Today we continue on with our St. Luke's on Broadway sermon series by looking at Man of La Mancha. It's a great story written by Miguel de Cervantes. He wrote it in two volumes in 1605 and 1615. It was an amazing story. It's been considered the first modern novel in Western literature. It's also been called one of the greatest pieces of work in Western literature. It's interesting when you see how he did it because what Cervantes did was he created a story within a story. And though this is not an autobiographical piece, he did write himself into the story. The story begins with Cervantes being put into prison along with his servant and this is during the Spanish Inquisition. He is in prison and all the other prisoners there immediately want the things that he has. He is trying to keep them from taking them, but the thing he wants to hold on to the most is a manuscript of this play that he has written. All of those who are there are more than happy to burn it. That's what they think they need to do, burn the manuscript. And so Cervantes comes up with an idea and says, give me a chance to put on the play, to convince you to decide whether this is worthy or not. And so all the other prisoners agree. They didn't really have a whole lot more to be doing while they were in prison. And so they agree. And he turns around and pulls out of his things and immediately puts on a costume. And now he is Don Quixote. And all the rest of the prisoners are also going to play parts in the show. And so are going to be a person who's going to be the judge. And now he begins the story of Don Quixote. Now, Don Quixote is someone who had been reading so much of chivalry, the stories of knighthood and of fair maidens and all the wonderful things that had gone on before. And they say that he had read so much that he had gone mad, crazy, that he had begun to see the world in a strange way. He saw things that other people didn't see. And he believed in love and beauty and truth and fighting for the right and justice. During this period in history, chivalry had really come under scrutiny and many people were saying, chivalry is dead. All these things that we believe, no, 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 those are not the values that we embrace anymore. It was the time of the Spanish Inquisition. So, we follow Don Quixote on all of these episodes in his life, for he goes out and sees things that others don't see. He sees a windmill and he thinks it's a giant. And so he immediately attacks the windmill, and he loses. And he knows that he loses because he doesn't have a fair maiden. He hadn't been properly knighted. And so he and his sidekick head on down the road, and there is a tavern. But Quixote sees a castle. And they come in, and there is a barmaid. And what he sees is a fair maiden. All the places he goes, he sees one reality and others see another. Until we finally come to the end of the show. His family wants to confront him with what is real. Who is he and what is real? And he meets the knight of mirrors. And this knight forces him to see himself and reality. And when he does, it breaks his spirit. And you now find Don Quixote in bed. 
and he is dying. He has forgotten that quest, that impossible dream. He had forgotten all of these values that he had and he tried to espouse until family and friends gather around him and suddenly he remembers one more time that quest, that dream, the world that he wanted to see and he gets out of bed and he dies in their arms. That's the end of the play. When the play is over, all of the prisoners who are there are moved. Having been watching Don Quixote and the things he believed and how he treated people and what he saw, it affected all of them. They are all moved and they find the play worthy. They find Cervantes worthy. And just as they are all coming to that conclusion, the drawbridge comes down into the prison. The guard comes in and Cervantes and his assistant are summoned before the Grand Inquisition. And as they walk out of the prison cell, the story is over. To understand the story, I think there's a few pieces we need to put together here for history. Miguel de Cervantes, he was born in 1547 in Spain. He grew up there and he was very poor. And his first lady, first love was a barmaid. It's who he fell in love with and she fell in love with him and they were determined they were madly in love and going to get married. But her father found out about it and it was her father who believed that Cervantes was poor and would never make anything of himself and so he forbid it. And he was right. He was poor. But he actually did pretty well. But they never got married. But he would always remember his first love and what he saw in her. He went and joined the Navy. And there in the Navy, the Spanish Navy, he wanted to fight for his God, for his country. And they went into a great battle and he was ill and he was down below in a cabin, but he came upstairs because he wanted to be in the fight. And in that fight, he was shot three times. He would lose the use of his left hand, his left arm, And he would say, I lost my arm's usage in the glory of the right. He said, I would rather die for my God than to be hiding under covers. He truly felt he had marched into hell for a heavenly cause. He would ultimately be kidnapped by pirates, held for ransom for five years. Finally, his family was able to ransom him, and he came back home to Madrid And there he would settle down and he would write, and he would write, Man of La Mancha. La Mancha is an area, a place south of Madrid, there in Spain. That's what La Mancha is. It is an area, a very plain, unromantic, uninspiring area, not the kind of place you expect a great hero to come from. The one thing they had in La Mancha was windmills and lots of them. The story did take place right in the middle of the Spanish Inquisition. You may remember from your history, it was in 1480 that Ferdinand and Isabella, king and queen of Spain, decided to issue an edict giving the church the power 
to be inquisitive, to inquire about the things people believed and how they lived. And they begin to outlaw any kind of marriage between a Christian and a converted Christian. You see, the converted Christian probably had been a Jew, and they had come and they said, a sword to their throat, be baptized or die. It's amazing how many people joined the church. It's in a very effective means of evangelism that we don't do anymore. But a whole lot of people in the church wondered, did they really mean it? It's a good question. And so a Christian couldn't marry a conversos. You could not marry a Jew. You couldn't marry a Muslim. No. What Ferdinand and Isabella wanted to do was to create a pure Christian Spanish race. And we all know what happens when you try to create a pure race. We've seen it in Germany. We've seen it in Rwanda. It happened in Spain. No, they created this inquisition. And and people then had to come and live in a certain way and embrace certain values. Thousands upon thousands of people would be tortured, killed, burned alive. The Spanish Inquisition would go on for for 354 years until 1834. It was in 1492 that they issued an edict that all Jews had to leave Spain. More than 160,000 left. And then in 1526, all Muslims must leave Spain. And once they had gotten rid of the Jews and the Muslims, then they turned their attention to the Protestants. And when they got through with the Protestants, they turned their attention to Catholics that they didn't feel like were being good enough. St. Ignatius of Loyola was thrown into prison twice, being considered a heretic. The Spanish Inquisition, it created a time of torture and darkness and terror. And so it's at that place that Cervantes writes this story about a man who sees the world differently. A world of hope, a world of love, a world where you fight for the right and you take care of the weak. He had a whole different view of what the world could be and who he was in that world. To understand really the essence of the book, I think all you have to do is look at the relationship between Don Quixote and Aldonza. I told you when Quixote came to the tavern, he saw a fair maiden. And he said to her, what is your name? And she said, it is Aldonza. No, no, no. Your name must be Dulcinea. No, it's Aldonza. No, it must be Dulcinea. Now, Aldonza, she was a barmaid by day. She was a prostitute by night. And all the patrons who were there looked at her and started laughing, going, Dulcinea, you're Aldonza. But he wouldn't hear of it. He saw beauty. He said, I see heaven in you. He saw all the good about her. And everyone starts laughing at Don Quixote. Don't you know who she really is? What she is? She gets so frustrated at Don Quixote, she throws her dish towel at him, and he catches it and goes, a silk scarf. 
I will wear it as a token of your love when I go into battle and remember your love for me. Everyone laughs at Quixote except Aldonza. She can't bring herself to laugh at him. There's something about him. It makes her look at herself and she begins to suddenly struggle. Who am I? Am I Aldonza? The person I've always thought I am? Am I Dulcinea? The person that he sees? Who am I? I told you when we come to the end of the show how he has been forced to look at reality for whatever that is. He sees reality. It breaks his spirit. He's lying in bed. He has forgotten the quest. He has forgotten the dream and all those things he had believed. But as he's lying there dying, suddenly Aldonza shows up. She comes and she kneels by his bedside and she says, Don't you remember me? No. Surely you must remember me. It's Dulcinea. Everything changed when you spoke to me. I thought of Jesus and how many lives would be able to say the same thing. Everything changed when you spoke to me. Whether it was Zacchaeus or Nicodemus, a woman at the well, Saul, Peter. In our scripture lesson this morning, we were reading how you remember that Jesus saw Peter on the beach and spoke to him and said, you're a fisherman, but come follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. And Peter went to go be with Jesus and living with Jesus, being near him, began to change the way he looked at the world. It changed what he believed was possible. It did something to his soul. It inspired him about being something more. And Jesus said, Peter, you are the rock on which I will build my church. Until the night Jesus was betrayed, Peter was no rock. He was a coward. He denied knowing Jesus. He ran away. Jesus was crucified, three days later raised from the dead. But Peter had gone fishing with some of the other disciples when the risen Christ showed up on the beach, fixing breakfast for them. The risen Christ was there to speak to Peter, to rekindle in Peter an impossible dream, to help Peter remember, you are the rock. Not a coward, you are the rock. Do you know who I see you to be? Do you know what I see in you? And for Peter to be near Jesus, to hear Jesus say, Peter, do you love me? You know that I love you, Lord. Then feed my sheep. You love me? I believe in you, Peter. Do you have the world? Do you see the world and what it could be? It changed everything. You know, I thought it was a fascinating thing as I was working on this to come to the idea or realization that when Peter began to have that dream, that impossible dream and to follow Jesus and to call him the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, 
Really, he was being a heretic. The word heretic literally means someone who holds an opinion that is different from the commonly held belief. People did not hold the belief that Jesus was the Messiah or Son of God or the Christ. And so the early disciples, as they began to say these things, that was blasphemy or they were being heretics. The early church really struggled with exactly what do we believe about Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? We struggled with that and had lots of ideas until 323. And in 323, Constantine became emperor of Rome. And Constantine wanted to have one religion for Rome. And that would be Christianity. And so he knew that all Christians needed to think the same thing. And so he called together a big council at Nicaea with all the church leaders. And he said, I don't care what you decide, just decide one thing. And so they talked and debated and talked and took a vote and said, this is orthodox. And they said, fine. Then everybody who doesn't believe that is a heretic. And they can be burned at the stake. And we begin to struggle. What does it mean to have orthodox ideas versus different ideas? It became a struggle. It set up in the church the Spanish Inquisition. The very idea, you don't believe the orthodox things, then you go to jail, you're tortured, you go to prison, you're burned alive. It's really what set up the struggles in Cervantes But it's also what set up struggles, not just in Spain. It also took place there in Italy. You had people like Galileo. Galileo, who was a heretic. Why was he a heretic? Well, he believed that the sun was the center of the universe, not the earth. That we all went around the sun. And so many people believed that made God something lesser. And so the church said, you're a heretic. You believe something that is not the common belief. Galileo had to recant what he believed or be burned at the stake. They put him under house arrest till the day that he died. It would be 350 years later, almost the year 2000, before the church finally said, All right, we were wrong. Galileo, you weren't a heretic after all. You were right. That's what I loved about John Wesley. In the 1700s, For in the 1700s, John Wesley was saying, nobody has all the truth. Think and let think. If you love Christ and you love your neighbor, then give me the right hand of fellowship. We can be friends. We're on the same page. Nobody has all the truth. You know, it was Helen Keller who said, the heresy of today will be the orthodox of the next generation. We struggle. Is everybody believing the right thing? It was in the midst of that struggle in a world of oppression and darkness that Cervantes wrote Men of La Mancha, Don Quixote, A Different View of the World. It's interesting that the musical came out in 1965 and was so incredibly popular. And think about it. The 1960s was one of the most turbulent decades in the history of our country as we all struggled with what are the right beliefs. We struggled with orthodoxy. 
in the 60s? What do we believe about segregation? Separate but equal? Do we really believe that people who have white skin are somehow better than people who have brown or red or black skin? It had been the commonly held belief. We struggled with that. We struggled with the belief about women. What is the role of women? Can women be anything they believe God has called them to be? Or do we know the role of women? That women can wind up being preachers or plumbers or astronauts or whatever they think God has called them to be? That was a new way of thinking. War. We had fought World War II. We fought Korea. We were fighting in Vietnam. And we begin to say, is that really the way to peace? Can't there be peace? Can't there be love? Why are we fighting and killing? In the 60s, we begin to struggle with social mores and what is the accepted orthodox? How do you wear your hair? Can you wear long hair? Big sideburns? We struggled with sexuality. You know what's fascinating? When you go back and you look at the 60s in our country, in the beginning, it was a real revolution. It was a real radical time in which we began to try to call, let's have peace, let's have love, let's treat all people equal, let's have rights for women. We were striving for our best selves and a view of the world. It did get sidetracked quite often. It would get sidetracked into a time of selfishness and self-centeredness and drugs and free love. We became our base self. And so the 60s, you really see, is kind of a time that there's a struggle going on. Am I going to be my best self with a vision of the world of peace and love and equality Or am I going to be my base self? And it's really all about just feeling good. I think that's the struggle we all go through. And that was the struggle with Aldonza? Or am I Dulcinea? Am I the best that I'm being seen? Or am I being the base person that I can be? It is the struggle, I think, for all of us. And I think it was the issue of this show. Just two things I want us to leave us today. First of all, understand I believe it is Christ that reawakens an impossible dream in us all. It is when you and I are close to Christ that something happens to our spirit and we are inspired to be something more, the best we can be. The one who dreams a great dream who seeks to live with love and equality and kindness and goodness and we're going to make the world a better world. It's by being close to Christ. It's why we worship. It's why we have our devotionals. It's what it means to live in Christ, to be aware of His love and presence. It inspires us to be our best self. You have an impossible dream. It changes how you look at the world. The show, I believe, was so incredibly successful because it was written in the 1600s in the middle of the Spanish Inquisition. The musical hit the stage in 65. It won five Tony Awards. 
After a run of several years, it's already been revived on Broadway four times. It's been translated into 30 languages and shows all around the world. It is on travel around the United States right now. And I think it's because when you come into that spirit, it does something to raise your soul, to help you see the world in a different way. It was so successful that it took them only seven years to make a movie out of the play. And in the movie, you remember that Don Quixote was played by Peter O'Toole. And Aldonza was played by Sophia Loren. What an amazing lady, Sophia Loren. I'm not sure you know her story. I didn't know so much about her. But, you know, Sophia Loren is a person of great faith. She is a good Catholic. She was born in 1934 in Italy. It turned out her mother, uh, Romaldi, Romaldo, she, she wanted to be an actress. And her mother had said no. So she ran away from home. She met a young man named Ricardo. They fell desperately in love. And she wound up being pregnant. And after she became pregnant, he refused to marry her. And then he left her. And she worked so hard to try to survive and get by. She couldn't do it. This was 1934 in Italy. The one thing she felt she couldn't do was go home. She felt she had shamed her family. She did not know how they would react. And finally, out of desperation, she did go home. And when she knocked on the door, her mother opened the door and she threw her arms around her daughter and hugged her and brought her and now her granddaughter, Sophia, to live with her. Her mother continued to have struggles, but Sophia's grandmother was the rock in her life, raising her in an environment where she understood love, forgiveness, dreaming a dream of who you can be regardless of your past and stigma. Who can you be, Sophia? They went to church every week to Mass, and Sophia loved Jesus so much. At one Sunday after Mass, they'd been taking communion, and of course she couldn't take communion, you had to be a certain age. You have to go through your catechism classes before you can finally celebrate your first communion, a high and holy day. But Sophia, this young child, she managed to slip into the back and there she frowned the bread and ate the bread and drank the wine. And she came home so proud and was able to tell her grandmother, I took communion today. Her grandmother wasn't quite as excited. You did what? But she was a little proud. Her granddaughter so wanted to be close to Jesus. I believe it was her faith that helped her to stay grounded through a career of the ups and the downs, the good times and the failures, the mistakes. I, I was reading an interview with her later on after she had had such this career, such a beautiful lady. And the, the reporter was saying, so do you feel you're beautiful? And she said, no, no, not really. It's my nose. My nose, it, it, it needs to be fixed. I've had many people tell me, fix your nose. But she said, you know, it's my nose that makes me unique. And it's because I'm unique that I get the parts. And so truthfully, I don't think I'm beautiful, but I like the way I look. I like the way you look, who you are. 
when she had two children, that became the most important thing in her life, being a mom, more important than fame, is children, being a mom. And she became involved in seeking to bless lives and being involved in charitable things. Now, I really believe it's because of her faith that she continued to have a vision of who she is and what she can be and do in the world. It's you and I who seek to draw close to Christ so that we are inspired. Who are you? Aldanza Dulcinea. The best? God has called us to dream a different dream about the world, an impossible dream. And so second, it simply is a question. Will you be true to that glorious quest? To share God's love and bring hope in the world? When Jesus spoke to Peter on the beach, he was reviving in Peter an impossible dream. To dream a different world. To change things. It's the same dream that I believe Christ gives to us to dream a dream about a different world. To dream that there will be a world of peace, not war. Love, not hate. A world where every child goes to bed fed. A world where everybody has a roof over their head. A world where every girl and boy can go to school and get an education and become the person that they believe God has called them to be. A world where every human being is treated with respect and dignity and a person is judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. A world where people have life, liberty, and get to have the pursuit of happiness and can be free. We're called to a different dream. It's an impossible dream. Isn't it? I mean, it's true. Peter did not change his world and overthrow the Roman government that day. Cervantes did not stop the Spanish Inquisition that day. You and I will not stop terror and prejudice and hate in this world today. But the world will be a better place for this. That one person, scorned and covered with scars still strove with their last ounce of courage to reach the unreachable star. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.